Hi, guys. You guys doing good? Kind of. Hey, real quick, I know it's kind of one of those weird questions. You're like, should I, should I say we're doing good? Should I say nothing? Should I hoot? What should I do? Um, I get it. So, hey, real quick, before we jump into the Bible this morning, a um, couple, well, actually, one real quick announcement. Um, if you guys were here last week, uh, we had announced just an all-church season that we kind of feel led by God to kind of venture into right now to pray. Um, the reason why is because um, basically everything's kind of spelled out in this little flyer. Um, if you are, if you've ever kind of want to get information, let's just put it this way. If you go to this church and you call this your home, my hope would be that you, you want to know what is going on. Like that would be some form of uh, uh, desire that you would have to want to be informed as to what's happening. So a couple ways that you can do that, probably one of the best ways to do that is either get onto the city, which is our... Um, basically our social network that we have that's kind of part of our church, or another way is just get involved and kind of find out information through our Facebook page, just Calvary Slow Church, all the information we always post on there. So we've been kind of keeping everybody abreast as to what's been happening with regard to this. In short, what we've been doing, uh, because uh, the landlords uh, have wanted to kind of raise our rent to really kind of a, a, a considerable amount that's far beyond what we kind of feel uh, we should, we're able to kind of pay, or we feel like God wants us to be paying really for it, um, as well as just they didn't want to do anything long-term. It really kind of caused our eldership team to really perfectly consider, like, what's the best way for us to kind of steward our resources and be a church that can just continue to do what we feel called to be doing? And we've been in church here for over 20 years and, and slow on the Central Coast, impacting people's lives. We feel like God still wants to do lots of great things through us. Um, but we just got to figure out where that's going to look like, what, what that's going to look like, and what me- meeting place we're going to be able to meet. So uh, there's not a ton of options out there. We're just perfectly considering what it looks like. So we're asking you guys, we're trying to mobilize our church family to pray. Just out of curiosity, how many of you actually last week, you either gathered together with one of the prayer hubs or one of our community groups, or even as a family, or even on your own, just prayed on your own, you actually like committed to praying for our church last week? Raise your hand. That's awesome. That's like over half of you guys. Good job. Um, so, anyways, we're asking, we're going to keep doing this for the next two weeks, and we're inviting you uh, to be part of it, to really take this to heart, and we're trusting God to do something through all of this. Um, the Bible really says that, you know, when we lack, when we don't have answers, when we need God's help, we turn to Him, and we, we trust that God will give us some sort of direction and guidance as to what this will look like. So in short, what we're basically calling you guys to is just to devote some time to prayer. We're basically asking you to do it one of four ways, or all four ways if you want. One, Sunday morning services. We'll devote some time to pray. We'll do that in in a little bit. Um, Community groups, if you are part of an already uh, formed community group that meets, uh, you know, really all around the county. We have them in North County, South County, Los Osos, Slow, a bunch of them. Um, uh, We're asking you, if you're part of a community group, mobilize your community group to spend some time praying. It doesn't, you know, it can be 10 minutes, it can be... 45 minutes, however long, it doesn't really matter. Just devote some time to ask God for the things that we'll tell you about in just a second to be praying for. Third way, our home. So that means that all of us live somewhere, I'm assuming. Um, and if you're living, especially with roommates that maybe love Jesus or you're part of a family, um, mobilize them to, to pray. Just say, hey, would you mind taking a few minutes and just pray with me um, you know, for some of the needs uh, with regard to my church and what we're kind of uh, doing. Um, Fourthly are what we're calling prayer hubs, and prayer hubs are basically just uh, groups that gather all around the community and really the county, um, and they're devoting some time just to pray. They're offering to just open up to anybody, so if you are not involved in a community group, or if you don't have a home, or your home's a little bit divisive and contentious, and it's probably not a really good place to pray for stuff like this, because they don't really want to pray with you for things like this, and you're like, I just want to meet somebody, you can get involved in one of the prayer hubs, and they're all over the place. This kind of lays out all the information, Um, and again... We kind of updated this, so if you are on the city or if you're part of that little Facebook page, you would have gotten the information. One of the most recent things we updated was just a little fact section or like, you know, frequently asked questions. And one of the questions that we've been asked um, often and we've been really trying to respond to as as many questions as have been arisen because we are really trying to provide as much information for you guys as we can. We're, We're not this organization that's all secretive and hiding everything. There's really nothing that we have to hide. We're a family. We're trying to operate as a family be a church as a family to really carry on God's mission. So one of the common questions that gets asked, like, how come you guys don't buy a building? Are you guys open to buying a building? And the answer is absolutely, we're totally open to buying a building. If that's what God has, we're totally open to that. So why haven't we so far? Well, really, there's kind of three reasons. One, um, for a church our size in San Luis, it's, it's really, really expensive. 
Um, secondly, you know, we have limited resources. I mean, obviously, uh, we have a very, uh, fairly large church, a very limited budget. A lot of our church is composed of people between the ages of 18 to 35, and most of you all are, are single. So there's, you know, we're, not, we're not necessarily a very, very rich church. We've got a lot of people, a lot of needs, which has caused us to the need to raise up you know, other pastors. We have a very small staff compared to the size of our church. Um, but at the end of the day, um, we, we really, final reason is we really try and have really tried to be a church that stays true to what we feel is our DNA. And that's, we, we don't ever want to become a church that gets buried in debt. So we've, we've strategically uh, set forth an agenda, a desire that we don't get involved in debt, that we don't get overextended, that we don't find ourselves so buried under you know, debt that we're not able to be generous. We're not able to you know, figure out a way to send a check for $10,000 over to our missionaries that are living in Hungary that desperately needed a car so they can go travel and deliver groceries to the homeless and the gypsies and uh, being able to do these things because they needed that. So we as a church are like, let's, let's send them $10,000. Let's help them. Or in Ukraine, ways in which we've given money in all sorts of ways like that. So we, we always want to maintain a posture of generosity and we feel like we can't do that if we are buried under significant debt. So, um, so our main goal is not to have a building. It's to really be mobilized and be missional-minded. Now, if we're able to have both, don't get me wrong, we'll do it. Like, absolutely we will do it. But we don't want to sacrifice or jeopardize one for the other. Does that make sense? So, you know, so the question naturally arises, in how, how could you do both? Well, the, the way that, that gets promoted or the way that can get communicated is, is if God gave us resources. I mean, if we had the resources, and you're like, well, how does God give resources? Does money come out of heaven? Most of the time, never. All right, just FYI, like most of the time, never. I mean, there is an instance in the Bible where actually money came out of the mouth of a fish, but that's pretty seldom, pretty rare. Typically, it doesn't happen. So most of the time, money actually comes out of people. It comes from people. It comes from people that are like, gosh, we love what Jesus is doing. We want to be part of what Jesus is doing. And we want, to, we want to give and contribute generously. We want to steward. So if you have this culture of stewardship where the church is committed to stewarding rightly what they've been given and the people that compose that church are committed to right stewardship is saying we want to give generously and we want to give in ways that are, are, are just beautiful, that represent Jesus. So that, that's how that works. So we realize that not everybody has a lot of money, um, but some, some do and some maybe want to give generously. So that's where the final thing is networking. Like, really networking, I mean, actually communicating, conveying to other people um, the needs of our church. Like, like we're taking any information that, that we can find. Like, if, if, if you know of a building or if you know people that have resources and are like, we love Jesus and we want to give generously, we just don't know who to give to, like, like we'll, we'll, we'll be happy to talk with them. But um, we, we, just, we are, are really asking you guys, more importantly than anything else, to join with us and pray. Like, we really believe that God has answers. And we really believe that what God is asking us as a church family to do is to commit together as a family, to rally together in all these different ways in which we just mentioned, and to pray. So that raises the final question, like, what do we pray for? I'll show you a little slide up here. Um, three things really fast. One, pray that our church family would just have flexible hearts committed to God's mission, that we would be flexible, whatever that looks like, that we'd follow Jesus, that uh, security would not be our lowercase G, God, but Jesus would be our uppercase J, God, right? Anyways, you get the idea. Um, I know my spelling's a little bit off right there, but the point of the matter is is that we want to follow Jesus, and we realize that sometimes Jesus calls us to follow him in places that are not always focused on comfort. So we're, we're asking that whatever, whatever it looks like for us to mobilize, that we would have a church family that's like, we're in this for Jesus. So the second thing is uh, ask God that he would lead us to the right direction. Ask God that I was... Also, he'd provide resources that we need, the finances for, that, for us, whatever that looks like. I mean, if God wants us to buy a building, we're like, yes, it'd be amazing. We'd love to, to be able to have something that is a little bit more long-term and whatnot. But again, we, we really want to be able to see that God provides for that. We don't want to just you know, go out and get a massively extent, expensive loan and then be buried for the next 20 years and not ever be able to be generous. We just feel like that's a loss for God's kingdom. So anyways, um, final one is just pray for clarity and wisdom to be given to our elder team that are tasked, committed by God with the responsibility of, of deciding and figuring things out and praying and whatnot. So we're just inviting you guys as a church family to pray. That sound good? In fact, what I want to do right now is um, uh, I, I, wanna, I just want to pray right now. 
um, for this because we're going to allocate some time. But I, I would love to just take a few moments right now to pray uh, and rather than kind of at the end. So yeah, how's, here's how we'll do this, I think. Um, um, how about I'm going to have all you guys stand up on a count of three. All right, I'm serious. I'm not, I'm not joking. I'll have you guys all stand up, and then you'll need to turn around and meet somebody. Maybe you haven't met them. Um, and that's cool because if you're sitting next to someone, you're like, I just wanted to be anonymous. You will feel really uncomfortable. But um, sorry about that. Actually, I'm not sorry. But the point of the matter is, is um, as we come together as a church, let's, let's, let's really gather together. Let's take the next few moments, and we'll gather in like little groups of threes to five or whatever it looks like, and just pray for these things that we have up there, okay? We'll just take a few moments, pray, and then uh, we'll come back to sit down. So you can stand up on the count of three, and we'll all do that. Does that sound okay? So if you're here and you are like the, I wanted to be anonymous, not talking to anybody, that's fine. You don't, you don't have to talk to anybody. That's totally fine. You don't have to pray. If you're, you're not a Christian and praying out loud, obviously, is the last thing you want to do. If you're a young Christian and praying out loud it freaks you out, then, then that's totally fine. Don't have to say anything. You can just join in a circle. And if you've got a circle of five people that are, are, are just like you, it'll be a little bit awkward. But... But, you know, you'll get through it, and it'll be fine. I'll pray out loud, and so you guys all hear me, so hopefully it won't be too awkward. So it's not going to be like a little awkward hug, you know, but sometimes awkward hugs, you've got to work through those, and it's just like you're going with life. Is that sound okay? You guys okay with, like, praying in church? Is that cool? All right, so on count of three, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you all to stand and then turn in little groups of threes and fives or whatever and just pray for all these things that are up here. Sound good? One, two, three, go.
All right, guys, we're going to jump in. So, thanks for praying. Why don't you guys have a seat, have a seat, and uh, as you're sitting down, uh, take your Bibles. You can open up to the book of Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians 6. If you guys don't have a Bible, uh, raise your hand. We have ushers that would love to get you guys Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. We want you to have one. So, Ephesians 6, uh, we're going to be taking a look at today, what we've been looking at actually the past several weeks, is what's commonly called the uh, armor of God, or the spiritual armor. And it fits within the context of this larger reality of what God's doing in this world, that God is making broken hearts whole. God's healing areas where there was nothing but ruin. God is taking lives that were steeped in death, and he's making them alive. In a lot of ways, that's our church. That's who we are. So if you ever really penetrated kind of just the shallow, typical talk that oftentimes we have and began to ask people really hard questions about, you know, what is going on in their life and what's taking place currently this past week and what's been going on over the past year in your life, if, if you ever kind of penetrate the surface into that realm of people's lives, what you begin to discover is probably this constant, ongoing story of death and resurrection, <laughs> of of uh, old life being passed away and new life coming into place. Things that were once ugly, things being made beautiful. This is, this is the story of redemption. This is what God is doing in people's lives. This is what God's doing all around us. So that what it means is that as we gather, there are going to be people in all sorts of different places and stages and phases in their walks with God. Now that being said, Paul basically tells us that there are forces dark forces, powerful forces that are constantly trying to push against the good, redemptive, healing, restorative work that God has begun in this thing that we call the gospel. And these forces are basically uh, led by uh, what he describes as the devil or Satan. He's identified throughout the Bible as being the great tempter. He's the accuser. Uh, and he always comes to try to undo the good work that God is wanting to do. And so what Paul is basically saying is that typically when we find ourselves in this tension or caught, if you would, in sort of the crosshairs of demonic attack or oppression or pain or suffering or whatever these things that oftentimes come into our lives, we oftentimes find ourselves wanting to sort of tap out, to lay down, to become vulnerable, to fall on our back. And that's oftentimes what happens is we give in to temptation rather than resist it. We give in to those moments of depression rather than fight it. We give in to all sorts of other things. And what Paul is saying is that, no, no, there is power that God's given you so that you can resist the temptation. There's power that God's given you so that rather than falling flat on your back and being overtaken by demonic attack, you actually have power by God to stand on your feet in a posture of strength and overcome these attacks, overcome these things. Not with more evil, but with good. And this is what Paul is basically describing. So one of the things that he's been identifying is that one of the ways in which God has allowed us or enabled us to be strong is through what he describes as the armor of God. And it's why he says, take up or put on the whole armor of God. Uh, the whole armor of God. Other translations actually describe it as apply or applying the whole armor of God. So whatever this thing called the whole armor of God is, um, we do know, we get the idea that it needs to be taken up it needs to be put on. It needs to be applied. Those three different types of motifs or ideas or ways of describing it indicate or imply the fact that if you're a Christian, you have been given everything you need in God, in Jesus, to have victory, to be strong. And the reality is, though, is that you need to, though, as well, apply it. So there is an element by which you need to understand what it looks like to apply it, to put it on to clothe yourself in it in the different types of metaphors and translations by which Paul identifies this. So the little article that we'll be talking about today are really basically or oftentimes described as a shield of faith. It's uh, the shield of faith that will help quench or put out or extinguish the way Paul describes it, these fiery darts. So whatever the shield of faith is, whatever these fiery darts are, whatever it means to extinguish these metaphorical or real, whatever we'll, you know, we'll look at, um, uh, it, that will hopefully become clear. So I'm going to read the passage that we'll be taking a look at, and then we'll begin to try to unpack and try to understand a little bit what Paul means by taking up the shield of faith. So let's read Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13, and then we'll just jump down and uh, focus mainly on verse 16. 
but I want to read verse 13 as a little bit of a context as to what I've just been summarizing. So verse 13, Ephesians chapter 6, he says this, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand or withstand the evil day. And having done all, stand firm in all circumstances. In verse 16, he says, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. All right, let me pray real quick, and then we'll jump in. Take a look at this. So, God, we ask you right now that you would help us understand what this has to say to us. And, God, to find ourselves in the middle of flaming darts that crush us, that have a tendency to burn, that have a tendency to all these metaphors, God, that we think of that Paul identifies are examples that we oftentimes find ourselves in. So, God, we ask that you would give us help, give us strength, give us assistance. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would help us understand what it means to apply these things, what it means to actually pick up this shield of faith so that we would be shielded, so that we would be protected, so that we would be guarded against these arrows that have one aim, our destruction. So, God, help us, we pray. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Really, there's three phrases I really want to try to unpack and understand. And the three phrases aren't in any necessary order, but if you just think about it in terms of the larger passage in verse 16, it's the idea of take up. What does Paul mean by take up? Secondly, uh, we'll actually jump to the end of the verse, which he describes as the fiery darts. Again, what are fiery darts? What is Paul referring to when he talks about fiery darts? And then finally, we'll take a look at the concept of the shield of faith and what it means or how it extinguishes. So the real big question is how in the world... Does a shield of faith, whatever that is, help us uh, withstand these fiery darts, whatever they are, um, so that we can extinguish this thing that we obviously, by way of just simply reading it, realize is bad. So at the end of the day, we realize that we're caught in sort of this battle. So we've been saying over along in the past several weeks that if you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, that means that God has put you, put in you, I should say, new life. There's new life within you. But within you is this new life. You are in a larger context. We call this the world. We call this, you know, maybe San Luis Obispo, Slow County, 805, whatever you want to think about it. We're in this world system that, for the most part, by and large, is actually counter to the narrative of the gospel. In other words, the world in which you live in is not in sync. It's not in harmony with the message of the gospel. I'll just give you a couple examples of this. The message of the gospel basically says, love your neighbors. Well, that's absolute ridiculousness in our world. Nobody wants to love their neighbor. It makes no sense. Uh, The message of the gospel basically says, you know, do good to those that cause evil. You know, uh, bless those that curse you. Again, in the world context, that's that's just foolishness. Nobody does that. Jesus, again, describes, hey, the gospel is about forgiveness. Well, this world in which we live in is like, it's not about forgiveness. Nobody forgives. It's weak. That nobody wants to act weak, and if you show too much vulnerability or weakness, then you'll be devoured by the strong. But what Jesus is basically saying is that, look, the way that he has his kingdom, the way that his kingdom operates is vastly different than this world. It's one of the questions that Jesus was asked. He says, is your kingdom um, from this world? And then Jesus says, no, my kingdom is not from this world. And oftentimes Christians have concluded, well, see, therefore... Uh, one of these days, we're going to be taken out of this world and brought into another world. The way one scholar described it is that even though Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, meaning it, it's not framed by this world, it's not like the systems in this world, it is nonetheless for this world. So think of it this way. You and I, when forgiveness is withheld from us, do you flourish or do you languish as a human being? You flourish language. You don't have to answer. That's fine. We languish because we desperately want someone to forgive us. Like if we've done something wrong towards somebody, if we've offended somebody, and we're begging them, would you please forgive me? And they're like, no. In our hearts, like, please, what do I got to do to earn your forgiveness? And you will always kind of live this life feeling as if you're constantly under the gun, feeling as if anything you do is not enough, that you are always failing. So therefore... What brings wholeness or healing is, is forgiveness. And this, on a bigger, larger, sort of cosmic context, this is what the gospel is all about. That God says, I'm, I'm going to forgive you. I will cleanse you. I will wash you. Acknowledge your guilt. Acknowledge what you've done. Acknowledge and recognize the fact that you've been living 
alive or living for a system that is actually very counter to the life that I've called you to live. And therefore, it's a path that leads to death, not a path that leads to life. So really, the idea is that Jesus' kingdom is, is, is for this world. And it's, it's what we need. It's what we thrive on. It's what, if it's withheld from us, we languish, we die, we suffer. But if we enter into it, we find ourselves coming to life. So when we know that we've been forgiven, we know that we've been washed, when we know that we've been brought into God's life, then we come to life. We, life begins to change us and transform us. And this is what we see with this gospel. But at the same time, there are these forces, if you would think of it this way. Jesus brings forces of new creation right, into this world that's broken. Life, new life is what God brings. At the same time, Satan sort of is the promoter of the forces of anti-creation. He's always seeking to undo, untie, break apart, ruin everything that God's doing. And this is the spiritual battle that Paul is saying is happening in this world. The forces of anti-creation are always seeking to undo what God has begun. So if you're a Christian and you sense ever in your life a battle or a warfare, and you're like, it feels like there's a battle. The answer, the reason why is because you're, you're right. That's exactly what's going on. There is a battle to try to bring you back into the position or the posture, the place of corruption. And yet what Paul says is when those moments come, when those corrupting influences begin to tempt, when they begin to take apart your life, you have power by God that's been given to you to withstand those things. That's called the armor of God, but you've got to equip yourself with it. You've got to arm yourself with it. You've got to apply it and put it on. So let's first of all take a look at the first phrase, which is take up. This is a really simple, quick one. But the word take up is really the exact same word that's also used in verse 13, where it says take up the whole armor of God. Here in verse 16, he says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. So the implication is, is that something has been given to you. So if you want to think of it this way, it's been laid at your feet. But having a shield at your feet does you no good in the battle. In order for that shield to be effective, you have to actually take it up, pick it up, which is the word that Paul used there. So it implies or indicates something of action as well as intentionality. That we've got to be willing to recognize that it's been given to us by grace. God gave us this shield so that we can fight or withstand these evil attacks or onslaughts. But we have to, by faith, bend down, whatever you want to think of it this way, and pick it up and so that we can be equipped and armed and ready for it. So the second thing we'll take a look at, that was an easy one, are really the idea of fiery darts. Like I said, it's not really in any order. So the question that I want to naturally ask is really kind of this question is, uh, what, what are these fiery darts that Paul's talking about? Why does he use this phrase? Now, again, um, some other translations, it might just say fiery arrow. So back in the ancient Roman world, if you think of it this way, um, right, um, here's a, maybe a bad analogy, but um, American Sniper. It's like the, the, these guys, the archers back in that day, they were like the, the ancient like Roman Sniper, right? Right, right, not American sniper, but Roman sniper. And they had arrows, and this is the way that they would basically attack. And one of the other ways in which they would do it, they would dip the arrow in tar or, or pitch, and they would set it on fire, and when they would shoot it out to the enemy, um, depending upon the type of shield that they would have, oftentimes uh, soldiers would fight with these little wooden shields, and those wooden shields would then be struck or hit by the arrow with all the tar, and you can imagine tar is really nasty if you've ever been to the beach like and you walk away and you got nasty black stuff all over your feet that's basically tar you're like what's tar like that that's it like go to the beach walk around get in your car walk in your white carpet back at home uh make your roommates mad or your spouse mad or whatever but the reality is is that they would take that and kind of dip the arrow in there and that tar would splatter all over everywhere now remember it's on fire so if black tar splatters on you while it's burning uh pretty much you you, you die and uh so the point of the matter is you don't want to get struck by an arrow that has uh, flaming tar on it. Otherwise, it, it, it was really bad for you. So the point of the matter is, is that what they would do is they would shoot these arrows. And so unless you had the right type of shield to combat or fight against or to defend against these things, then you would be struck. So that's where they, this, this big Roman shield would come in. And I'll show you a picture of it in just a second here. And basically the Roman shield, the word that's actually used there uh, that Paul uses here is basically the very similar root word to the ancient uh, Greek word for um, a door. It's like the exact same word because these shields were actually the size of a door. So imagine like a four-foot door. Right? I know it's not the size of your door, but I went to Hobbiton, right, in New Zealand, where Hobbits live, and uh, it's actually a city. And so I think of, every time I think of these doors, I think of little Hobbit doors. So they're, but anyways, um, they would have these shields, and they would kind of stand behind these shields as they would be struck by these burning, flaming uh, 
arrows, and it would protect the soldiers uh, from these things. So what are, again, what are these flaming arrows? What is probably on Paul's mind when he's suggesting or talking about this idea of flaming arrows? Um, where does it come from? I think there's probably three sources uh, What is probably on Paul's mind, the first of which is probably like moral temptation. These are what we've been describing as corrupting influences, maybe like unforgiveness, maybe like hatred. Some of the moral corrupting influences would be like, you know, temptations towards porn, temptation towards sexual activity that's not incongruent with God's nature, God's character. So these types of things, which can oftentimes lead down paths of brokenness, deep brokenness, deep frustration, deep destruction in a person's life, um, these are various forms of fiery darts that may come into your mind and will lead you down a path of brokenness. And one of the questions oftentimes gets asked, like, what, how far is sexually too far? And one of the things I oftentimes just say is that, like, look, at the end of the day, what leaves you feeling defiled and filthy and broken inside is probably too far. Probably too far. Now, we don't always just simply go back and trust our conscience as to what we can feel, but oftentimes it can be a pretty good place to begin. So the point of the matter is, is that when we think about sources, it could also be talking about moral temptations or corrupting influences along the lines of sexual, uh, relational, whatever. I think of oftentimes Joseph. If you guys are familiar with the Old Testament story of Joseph, Joseph was um, one of the sons of Jacob, or otherwise known as Israel, and he had brothers who basically hated him, and so they sold him into slavery, and it was a pretty dysfunctional family, and so he ends up kind of winding winding up in an entirely different country. So imagine... Um, you know, you having a sibling you didn't really like too much, and so you sold him into the sex trafficking. All right, I know, pretty bad, pretty messed up, pretty dysfunctional. But that's what happened with Joseph. So he ends up basically being taken away off to Egypt. And though, so there he is in Egypt. Uh, we're told that basically around this time he's around 17 years old. So he's a strapping, good-looking young man, very physically fit. All right, he works hard. He's got a lot of slave labor, imagine. Um, so he's got a boss named Potiphar, and Potiphar's wife, is probably an elderly lady or an older lady, I should say, very mature and very, very promiscuous. And so she wants Joseph bad. So she's constantly pushing herself onto Joseph, and he is constantly resisting the temptation. He's constantly resisting the fiery darts, even though they're persistent, even though they are regular, even though they're frequent. And not only that, but as the story of Joseph advances well into the latter years of his life, um, as the story becomes more complex, Joseph begins to realize uh, very much so that his brothers are the reason why all these things happen. Even though they meant it for evil, he knows that God meant it for good. But he is struck with the reality of, what do I do now with my brothers? I am very much so tempted by these flaming arrows to hate them, to take advantage of them, to bring about their ruin. But that's not what he does. He actually forgives them. It's shocking. It's an amazing story. If you've never read the story, I would highly encourage you to read it. But to me, Joseph strikes me as one of those amazing examples of a man who was regularly and frequently struck by these flaming arrows of moral temptation, and yet somehow he comes out with grace and strength and poise and equilibrium rather than being overcome and rocked and ruined. Another source, I think, are pressures of life. These can be uh, stress or sickness, suffering, debt, oppression, poverty, starvation. Uh, probably not a lot of Americans here are you know, dealing with the plight of starvation. Um, but maybe many of us here are dealing with the plight of just radical stress, just filled with anxiety. You're, you're freaking out about life. Life is like literally a flaming, a flaming arrow that's just like devouring you and consuming you and ruining your life. And yet, what we see is that these are other forms of suffering that we see and challenges that we see throughout the Bible. These are just pressures of life. These are the types of, no doubt, stresses that Jesus probably would have encountered, uh, where he's dealing with a lot of people in the first century that were living under a very, very strong uh, Roman-occupied territory, and they were, for the most part, very oppressive. Uh, and these uh, Jewish people living in the first century had to you know, worry about you know, where we're going to get our food, how are we going to pay our bills, Tax time is coming around. We're not really sure how we're going to pay our taxes. We're not certain how our kids are going to get shoes for their feet because money's really tight. There's all these anxieties, and Jesus comes in in the middle of that. He's like, hey, don't you know that you have a father that actually loves you? He's your father. He 
He cares about what you need to eat. He cares about what you need to wear. He cares about all of these things. He has not forsaken you. He has not forgotten you. He loves you. So these were pressures of life that were like flaming arrows that came upon them. And I think of Job as a great example of this. Like Job in the Old Testament was one of these guys that was, uh, the Bible tells us, he was upright in all of his ways. Like he loved God. Um, on the face of the planet, you couldn't find a man that was more devoted and committed to God than Job. And yet in the sequence of events is that Satan, all right, the devil, comes to God and he's like, look, the reason why, the only reason why Job serves you is because you've given him everything. I mean, Job is like the epitome of lifestyles of the rich and famous, all right? I mean, Job is the epitome of, like, having the most amazing crib on the planet. Like, Job has been given everything by you. But if you take it all away, Job will curse you to your face. So God's like, bring it on, which, which is, like, deeply troubling, all right? Somewhere in heaven, God's having this dialogue with Satan, and Satan's like, look, take it all away. And God's like, all right, go for it. And then all of a sudden, Job's life comes undone. And yet, and yet, Job still, through it all, comes out with this lots of burning. (laughs) Lots was burned away. And yet he comes out with this sense of confidence in God like he's never known or never had before. Stripped, stripped of every other scenario within his life. Um, and then finally, I think of Flaming Arrow's source being within like pressures of persecution. And this is kind of, in the first century, we think of like Paul or the early Christians. Let me read you a passage out of the book of First Peter. Peter was writing to a bunch of Christians, and he says this, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery trials that you are going through as if something strange is happening to you. Instead, be very glad for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it's revealed to all the world. Um, it's, it's really easy for us in Western context to forget the fact that there are many people that just for simply following Jesus uh, will die. It happened in the first century. It's actually happening in our world right now. A lot of us, um, this is probably by and large, most of us in America will never, ever, ever have to deal with this. Um, God forbid. But if, but if we did, imagine the type of impact and the effect that that would have on our church. I mean, imagine. Like if, if, would, you, would you come to a gathering like this if you knew it meant um, the potentiality of you dying for it, being beheaded for it? Like that, that's happening in this world. And that was happening in this scenario. And it was described as fiery trials fiery trials. They will come. The fiery trials will come upon you and you will be tried as if by fire. But, Peter says, you will come through those fires. You'll be purged. You'll lose in this life. But what you lose in this life will ultimately be multiplied over and over All right, with compound interest in the world to come. (laughs) Think about that. Like That's what Jesus is is, is declaring and describing what Peter is basically uh, describing is, is, is do we believe that? And these are the various types of trials that we see, um, the sources of them. Second thing, I think of some of the results that come as a result of them, and I'll just go through these really quickly, a bunch of these. One, I think of difficulty. Obviously, difficulties arise as a result of these things, and these oftentimes we look at life and we're like, why is life so hard? Why is my marriage um, so challenging. Why are my kids so uh, like little demons? Why why do they not listen to me? Why 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 are landlords not kind? And why is rent so high in San Luis Obispo? And why do things happen to people that are inexplicable? And why do children get cancer? And why does a seventeen year old boy is in perfectly good health? have a series of tumors on his brain stem and not sure if it's going to make it. Why do these things happen? And there's a sense of difficulty. Life is hard. Let me say this. If you're a Christian or you're not a Christian or you're somebody kind of navigating the claims of Christianity, um, nobody gets off the hook here. You just need to know this up front. Difficulty uh, is will we'll find you, whoever you are, whatever religion you follow, whether or not you're even like uh, a disciple of Dawkins. 
you will be met by difficulty. It will, hit, it will hit you at some point in your life. It's difficult. Life is difficult. Uh, it's one of the results. Another result is depression. Like you, you, you find, I think of the word depression, the word depression literally means of something that is pressed. It's depressed. Think of a balloon, big balloon, but it's being pressed upon itself and all the air that's in it is now being pressed out of it. So what you have is nothing more than this flappy little bladder. Um, maybe some of you kind of feel like that little flappy little bladder. It's a horrible, horrible image in your mind, I know. But the point of the matter is that's what depressed means. Like there is no air left in you. You cannot catch your breath. You're depressed. You cannot breathe. The breath of life is not in you. Have you ever felt that? Like the, the, those moments where you're just like, can't even breathe. I can't even catch my breath. Well, that, that's one of the things, one of the results oftentimes of these flaming arrows. Another one is doubt, where you just doubt. You're just like, I doubt that this will happen. I doubt that God actually has my best interest in mind. I doubt that God will actually make good on promises. I doubt. Look, let me, let me make a distinction between questions of faith and doubt, all right? If you are a Christian, if you're following God, you will have moments where you will question God. Where what God is doing, what ways God is taking us on will oftentimes not make sense. But that's to be expected. All right, if you can somehow get into the mind of a two-year-old all right, and listen to the dialogue between mom, who's, let's say, you know, mid-30s, and, and two-year-old daughter, uh, uh, who's like you know, wanting to, I don't know, let's just say eat a little stick off the ground. And mom's like, mm, sweetheart, I don't want you to eat that stick. In the mind of that two-year-old child is like, this is ridiculous. You realize you are withholding life from me, and all I want to do is suck on a stick off the ground. Don't you get it? Don't you, why are you doing this? And there's this overwhelming sense of, like, I doubt, I disbelieve your best interest in mind for me, because if you really love me, Mom, you would let me suck on that stick. And the same thing is so oftentimes true, like, like with us as Christians, like, right, the only distinction is, is that the gulf between a two-year-old mind in understanding and a 35-year-old mom is vastly, vastly different than the mind of a fully mature adult in the mind of God. Does that make sense? So that means when God brings things into our lives, do we really think we're going to always understand them? No. And that's where the crisis of faith comes. Will I believe God? Will I trust him and who he is and his integrity and his character? Or will I trust my heart or my feelings or my emotions, which is oftentimes shaped by your confusion? What will I trust? One leads to total despair. One may lead to moments of questioning. But this is one of the reasons why I just say, like, if that's you, if, like, if that is your life right now, and you're kind of, like, in that moment of what's happening, I would direct you to read the Psalms. Like, read the Psalms. Invest your heart, your energy, your time in the Psalms. Like, just camp there. Don't leave the Psalms. Just focus energy on reading these things, because these are written by people just like you and I, who are, in fact, they, in some ways, totally unlike you and I, because they had a whole lot less understanding of God available to them than we do. I mean, they didn't even have a Bible, for goodness sake. Like, they didn't even have a Bible. They may have had some scrolls, if they were even available, but what they had given to them, they pressed into what they knew about God. And many of the Psalms were just people wrestling with God, like, why are you... I mean, some of the Psalms... Um, are, are nothing but tension with no resolve. Some of the psalms start with major tension and always end in resolve, in some form of resolve. But the point of the matter is, is that if you find yourself in life and you just have the moment of tension, it doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. That doesn't mean that you're a bad Christian. That just means that you are wrestling through what it means to trust God in the middle of very challenging circumstances and difficulties that make no sense to you, but may very well make perfect sense to God but he hasn't shared with you all of his secrets. <laughs> so, delay is another one where I think, I think of this as like, God, why are you taking so long? How come you're not giving me answers? Like, why are you not expediting all these circumstances in my life? 
Why is it taking so long? Um, this is a question I oftentimes get a lot from many people within our church. Our church is primarily um, dominated by single people. So obviously you imagine a lot of the questions I get are, how come God is waiting so long or taking so long to find me a soulmate, you know, a wife, a husband? Why, why is it taking so long? And sometimes it is couched within this larger context of like, I've done everything I could just to obey God and love God. And if you're, for example, single here today and you are that person, you're like, I, I've really tried to live my whole life being honest and upright and full of integrity and honor God. And yet, at the same time, you find yourself constantly wrestling with a question like, why has God not given something to me now? Why has it been delayed or pushed off or prolonged? Um, that oftentimes can lead to a great sense of frustration. Um, and finally, which kind of leads us often to this just overwhelming sense of discouragement, like we are at a loss. There's no courage, right? The opposite of courage is discourage. Like, I have no courage. Just a sense of, like, I just want to crawl into a hole in fetal position and forget about the world because I am nothing but discouraged. So this is often as what happens when we find these things taking place in our lives. But the question I think needs to be asked is, like, like what, what, what's why is fire so significant? Why does Paul use the metaphor of fire? Describe these as arrows, uh, flaming arrows. Well, if you think of it this way, fire is like this purging agent all throughout the Bible, but also all, all throughout nature. Right? When you think about fire, there's all sorts of metaphors for what fire is, um, both in nature, but as well as within the Bible. And oftentimes when you think about the concept of fire, um, and really even the ancients, like if you read ancient books about people, some of them were even Christians, some of them were not even Christians, they, they would have all these elaborate depictions and descriptions of fire, probably because, you know, late into the night, they didn't sit around and, like, watch, you know, all sorts of shows on Netflix. So they, they watched the fire, right? I mean, they'd sit there, be like, have a stick, and they'd poke it. You know, like, when you go camping, all right? And I don't mean, like, camping when you kind of, like, go into those, like, really nice yurts, and it's, like, you know, running water, and there's actually, like, hot and cold you know, everything. It was like, I'm talking like actually out in the middle of like nowhere and all you have is like a fire and, it's, and you're sick, way late into the night, like poking the fire, you're looking at the fire, you're like, oh my gosh, like the fire is like actually consuming that stick and it's like that stick becomes consumed by the fire. It's like almost like the stick becomes the fire and it's like, so fire has always had sort of this metaphorical image in throughout the Bible as well as nature. And if you think of it this way, what fire does is it actually separates that which is perishable from that which is imperishable and that which is genuine metaphorically, from that which is uh, untrue or false or fake. So if you want to think of it this way, like a Christian, a Christian going into the fire, Christian being struck by fire, um, oftentimes has this purging effect upon your life. So if you are in the midst of a fiery trial, right, and you find yourself feeling like I'm being, I'm being burned, I feel like fire, I feel like pressure, intensity, oppression, all of those words that would be used to kind of describe your life, why, what's happening? Well, there's a pretty good chance as to what's happening in your life is that fire, metaphorically, is purging or burning away things in your life that are corruptible. So here's an example. A Christian is a person or somebody that actually loves God and uses things. Whereas a hypocrite, so again, how do you distinguish between a, a real genuine Christian who's uh, following God as well as uh, from that of like a false Christian? Well, a real Christian is one who loves God and uses things. A false Christian or a hypocrite is one that loves things and uses God. So how do you distinguish between the two? Take away the things. Threaten the things. Delay the things. <laughs> Withhold the things. What are you left with? When that fire comes and the pressure comes and the pressure mounts and those things that you really, really, really want, but you are being given delay or being withheld or they've been taken away. Do you see a sense where you're falling apart, coming undone? Is the fire consuming you? So the question can be asked, on like, which, which are you, you know? Are, are, are we the holy ones that love God, the genuine ones that are clinging to God, loving God, and yet using things? Or are we the ones that are you know, loving things and using God? Probably the answer is yes. You're both. All the time. Both. And will always be both. All the time. Until the day Jesus comes and perfects you completely and you'll be with him or he'll come back. With that, um, 
Martin Luther, um, the great reformer, had kind of a word for that and basically from Latin describes it this way. We are simultaneously both justified, meaning we are made right with God, and sinners, every one of us. What that means is that we are always a series of mixed desires, mixed emotions, mixed affections. We're these times where we love God, we want to do the things of God, we want to serve God, we want to give our lives to God, we want to devote our energies and our resources and our money and our time and our energy over to the things of God, and yet simultaneously we're like, well, I just really, really, really just want to watch football. I just really, really, really want to go spend my money over here, and I really, really just want to do all these other things besides loving God. And, and what happens oftentimes are those fires come into our lives, and they begin to strip those things out of our hands, and true Christians, while they're suffering the loss of what they're holding on to, they're simultaneously pressing into God. And they're finding God to satisfy. So that's what fires do. That's what fires happen uh, to bring about in our lives. And what Paul is saying is that you don't need to be destroyed or ruined by these fires. There's a way to be protected. There's a way that God can bring you through these fires so that rather than being consumed and ruined, life will still be preserved. Maybe some things will be burned away. Maybe those bad things will be taken away. So this, this is the amazing thing about fire. It's because if you ever take wood, hay, stubble, right, bushes that are really dry, old Christmas trees. Uh, by the way, if you still have your Christmas tree up, it's probably a good idea to get rid of it. Um, you, you put it into a bonfire, and it's just it's gone. Like there's, there's nothing left remaining. But if you were to take a rock, for example, like ore that has, you know, little kind of uh, streams of, uh, I don't know what you would call it, ribbons of gold or whatever. Dave Westberg, what do you call that? Like, you're, like, like, what do you call that? Bands of gold? I don't know, whatever. Um, anyways, you would take this rock and put it into the fire and turn up the heat so it's really, really hot. What will happen is those things that reach a certain boiling point will begin to melt out. And if you were to take that gold or that silver and begin to melt it even further, what will happen is you will continue to remove all the impurities, the alloys within it actually reduce its value. So what you're left with is something absolutely refined and beautiful and perfect. And this is what we see that oftentimes fires bring about in our lives, these sufferings. They don't have to crush us. So depending upon what types of fires may be being brought in your life, some of them may have this useful element in your life. Some of them are brought about by temptations or corrupting influences. But the point of the matter is what Paul, I think, is describing is that when these fires come, when these flaming arrows begin to strike, there's, a, there's an ability that God has given you to put on so that you can withstand those things. And that leads us to the final one, which is the shield of faith. And really, this is what Paul is describing. You're kind of getting everything to. Because when these things come, he wants us to equip ourselves with the shield of faith so that we can extinguish these flaming arrows so that we are not undone, so that we are not ultimately crushed and broken and ruined. So think of a shield. This is a picture, an image of the shield. So again, this is kind of like that four-foot door that I was talking about. So if you can imagine someone behind there, they would oftentimes hide behind there so when the arrows would come, they'd be able to deflect these things um, and they would avoid being, you know, have pitch all over their bodies and die. Um, so this is the type of shield that they would use. But faith, if you think of it this way, what faith really is, is faith is really acting on God's word. Faith is simply acting upon what God has already said. So if God says something, we act upon it. So it raises the question, how do I uh, build up faith in my heart? So if you're kind of wondering that, you're like, here I am in the middle of fires. Here I am in the middle of you know, flaming arrows. I feel like they're coming at me, whether it be from corrupting influences like temptation, whether it be maybe you know, minor moments of persecution, or whether just from life stresses and debt and moments of uh, anxieties and all these other types of things, and they're having this impact upon you. How do I stand strong? How do I take God's word? How do I have faith? And the answer is, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by God's word. That's why we need God's word to constantly be fed in our lives. So let me, let me throw something out for you to consider, think about. Do you realize that every single one of us in this room right now, at all times throughout the day, or I should say at least at moments throughout the day, we are all feeding our souls, our hearts, with some form of a sermon. All right, if I can just put that in that context, sermons. Sermons are always, always being preached at us. I kind of had this epiphany a while back, you know, a couple of years ago, that commercials are actually sermonettes. 
Like every commercial you ever watch or listen to or are, like have to endure someone who posted on their Facebook wall. Like they're basically little minor, uh, little tiny sermons. All right, what the perfect example of it is Super Bowl, which is today, obviously. Uh, when you watch commercials, these are some of the best, most expensive sermons you will ever find on the planet. I mean, some of them are like really, really good sermons, and they're just innocuous, and they're really no big deal, and they're funny. Some of them are, are like legit sermons that are basically saying, hey, here's the good news. The good news is if you drink this beer, or if you take this purple pill, you will be given an everlasting life full of constant sexual virility. You will be given life of strength and energy. You will get everything you want. Just invest your heart, your energy, your time into this, and you'll have life. Is that, is that not a sermon? That's absolutely a sermon. So the question is, like, what, what will we believe? What sermons will we believe? Like, this is what I'm saying, is that Reading the Bible, investing a heart in God's word is basically an act of defiance that says, I refuse to listen to, to buy into the sermon structure of society and their empty promises. And instead, I will trust what God has to say because that leads to life. Every other sermon leads to some form of death. It may be prolonged. It may be down the road. It may have a long expiration date as opposed to a minor, small expiration date. But at some point, it leads to a path of brokenness. And this is where God basically says, trust me, my words impart life. We get faith by hearing what God has to say. So I want to I I do something. I, I just want to read to you. Um, some passages out of the book of Hebrews. And I just want you to listen to it because it's the passage that some of you may be familiar with. It's out of Hebrews chapter 11. It's called the Hall of Faith. And it basically describes, it starts off by basically giving a definition of what faith is. And then it begins to give uh, examples of what it calls this cloud of witnesses of the faithful. The faithful are those that are filled or full of faith. So I just want you to listen to this. So if you guys want, you can, you can open up to Hebrews chapter 11. You can follow along. Or if you don't want to do that, maybe just you want to close your eyes and just listen to God's word. Listen to what he has to say. These are the stories of the faithful who have endured great trial, great calamity, great hardship against all odds. They were able to quench these fiery darts. And rather than be consumed by these things, they became people that God exalts. That's what the... Chapter 11, Hebrews is really all about. It's God basically saying, these are my sons and my daughters who've trusted me. Even in the midst of great tragedy and hardship and flaming arrows, they've trusted me. And now I honor them. They've honored me. I honor them. Listen to the stories. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says this. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's a conviction of things not yet seen. It's this idea of like, God, I trust you. Even though I don't see really the future. I'm not positive of the future, but like a child responding to you stretching out your hand, I will hold your hand and wherever you lead, I know that hand is connected to a heart that's full of love for me. And goes on to say, for by it, people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible, by faith, goes on down a little bit. I'll read about Abraham. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And yet, he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in a land of promise as, for a, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to a city that has foundations and whose designer and builder was God. If you know anything about the story of Abraham, Abraham was a man that had great wealth, great honor, great respect in the land in which he came from, and yet God says, I want you to follow me, Abraham. I'm going to take you to a whole new land. You don't know what it looks like. You have no idea what's in store, but I want you to follow me. And Abraham followed God. He had no idea what was in store, but he knew that God was guiding and leading. Whatever God was guiding and leading him into, it had to have been, to some degree, better than what his former life was all about. He goes on to describe Sarah, his wife, who basically was past the years of being able to have children, which meant 
translates to she was postmenopausal, like, like it was impossible for her to have a child. And yet God, because God's God, God does the impossible, God gave her a child. He did the impossible, and they believed her. They trusted God. They trusted that God would do this. And then finally, I just want to li- listen to all this. He says in verse 32, he says, What more shall I say? For time would, f- would fail me uh, to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of the lions, quenched the fire, uh, the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. If you stop right there, you're like, oh my gosh, these were like superheroes of the Old Testament. They're superheroes. I trusted God and they're able to like do absolutely insurmountable, unexpected type of circumstances and things. Like, God empowered them all by faith. This is what God gave them. But the story continues, and listen, it says this. He says, and some, by faith, who followed God, were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, cut in half, beheaded, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats and destitute and afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains in dens and caves. It says, and all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised and this is the writer's way of basically saying, look, these people held to God in spite of all of these circumstances and opposition, and what they had was not the fullness. Think about it. They were looking forward to something that God would do. We as Christians, 2,000 years after the resurrection, we're looking back to what God has done. So the question, in closing, is how does faith help us in these moments, what faith does is it basically causes us to see that not only God is good, but he's also powerful. See, if all you have is a faith in a God that's powerful, but he's not good, then what you have is something very similar to Zeus, right? Something very similar to uh, uh, the, gods of, the gods of the ancient world, maybe like Mars, this powerful entity, a powerful deity that's very capricious. You're not really sure how he's going to act or operate. Or the flip side is if you just have a God that's all good, but he's not powerful, he might have a really big heart and might be full of sentimentality, but he is powerless to help you. But if you have a God that's both good and powerful, you have a God that not only has incentive and desire to heal, but he's also powerful enough to do it. And this is what we have when we look at Jesus. Is we have a God that chose to suffer. So the question is, where was God when the world was coming apart in the first century of the Roman world? Where was God? The answer to that is God was on the cross being crucified. God was in the middle of pain, suffering. Where's God now? God is not absent. He's not indifferent. He's not left the room. He cares. A God that is that close, that subjects himself, that inserts himself into a world that's riddled with suffering is a God that you can trust. That trust is, by definition, faith. That faith, by definition, becomes a shield that carries you through fiery temptations. I'm going to pray. I'm going to have us all stand, and I'm going to ask those of you that maybe find yourself in moments, because some of you might feel yourself carried under this weight of heaviness and depression and brokenness. And, and I want to pray for you, because I, I, I think it would be horrible for us to leave and not at least take a moment to pray for you. So what we'll do is we'll all stand, and when I say stand, and then um, I'm going to pray real briefly. And if that's you, you just for whatever scenarios are going on in your life, you just need prayer. All I want you to do is just raise your hand, and the people that are around you, We'll just gather around you, and if you wouldn't mind just making sure you gather around and lay hands on those people, and then just begin to pray for them, and then uh, we'll sing a couple of songs, and we'll close it up. Sound good? Um, if you're here and you got your kiddos, make sure you pick them up in about 
four or five minutes. You're more than welcome to bring them in here, but we just got to make sure we leave the teacher. So why don't we all stand, and uh, let me pray, and then if you are here and you have scenarios that are going on in your life, that you just feel yourself in the midst of these fiery darts, and you need prayer, you can raise your hand. So God, thank you that you're here. You're not absent. You're not indifferent. You're full of care, full of compassion, and you're full of power to actually help. So God, I pray that as we, as a body of people that are the representatives of Jesus are here, God, that you would use our lives to be like the touch of God upon people's lives. That's why we want to lay hands on people. We want people to know that they are not forsaken. They are not forgotten. Their pain has not been uh, just simply swept away or not considered. But God, you, in the most tangible way have entered into their suffering and have chosen, have sought to bring about their healing. 